right now, we are in the midst of having the highest number of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation being introduced in the history of this country. There's currently more than 300 bills that have been introduced across the country. So if you think about that stress and thinking about turning on the TV and think about what that does to a developing individual who is coming to terms with who they are, trying to find their own way, and they're hearing over and over again that just because of who they are, who they love, or how they express their gender, that they're different. Welcome to Voices of Victors, a podcast that asks thought-provoking questions, cultivates culturally relevant dialogue, and reveals truths about our shared human experience through discussions with diverse members of the University of Michigan community, ranging from alumni and faculty to students and staff. This podcast is brought to you by the Alumni Association of the University of Michigan. I'm your host, James McRae, a 1997 alum of the University of Michigan. Our theme for season two of Voices of Victors is diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. From examining the inequities of climate change and paid family leave to discussing authentic allyship, we'll be sharing stories and hearing from experts from the U of M community. In today's episode, we discuss mental health support for LGBTQ students and recent grads. Studies show that LGBTQ college students face sizable mental health challenges compared to heterosexual and cisgender peers. They experience a much higher incidence of substance misuse, depression, suicidal ideation, and academic and extracurricular disengagement than their non-LGBTQ peers. Moreover, LGBTQ plus persons are also less likely to seek care for their mental health concerns because they face significantly more stigma from healthcare professionals. Oftentimes, they want to seek help, but are unable to find professionals trained in providing care specific to LGBTQ plus issues. How do stigmas and societal discrimination impact access to quality mental health care for LGBTQ plus students and recent grads? And how can we address both to ensure they're receiving the support they need and deserve? In today's episode, we discuss this with two U of M professors whose research and work are dedicated to LGBTQ plus mental health care and evidence-based affirming interventions. Let's get started by introducing our first guests, Dr. Gary Harper and Dr. Craig Rodriguez-Sejas. Dr. Gary Harper is a professor of health behavior and health education and a professor of global public health at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. He has been conducting community-engaged sexual health and mental health research, practice, training, and policy work domestically and globally for more than 30 years, focusing primarily on LGBTQIA adolescents and young adults. Dr. Craig Rodriguez-Sejas is an assistant professor at the University of Michigan in the clinical science area. As the principal investigator of the Stigma, Psychopathology, and Assessment Lab, his research interests lie in understanding dimensional models of psychopathology among marginalized populations. Craig's clinical training lies in providing evidence-based affirming interventions for sexual and gender minority individuals. First question I have for you, and please, either of you feel free to jump in um, or defer to the other. Uh, what unique mental health challenges do LGBTQ plus students and recent grads face, in your opinion, and how do they impact their college experience? I think that there's a number of unique challenges that LGBTQ plus students face, both here at University of Michigan, I think at universities across the nation as well. 
And, and really just some of those mirror what LGBTQ plus people in general experience. Um, because of high rates of discrimination, oppression, marginalization, we do see that there are uh, a number of studies which have shown higher rates of mental health concerns among people in the LGBTQ plus community. And, and that's not because there's anything abnormal or defective in LGBT folks, but it's more because of the extreme and often oppressive rates of discrimination that people experience. And then when we look at this from a, a more intersectional perspective, and we look at people who um, are LGBTQ plus, and in addition to that are people of color, people with disabilities, people for whom English is not their first language, those intersectional identities can lead to even higher rates of stress. Um, so when we look at students in the university setting, you know, we're talking about, when we're looking at undergrads, we're talking about really late adolescents, so young people 18 to, to 21. Developmentally, there's still a lot going on in terms of their search for identity. Um, we do know that brain development is really not complete, especially in males till about age 25. So uh, there's a lot of aspects of development that are continuing throughout the college years. So think about that for any student and then throw on top of that um, multiple forms of discrimination, um, not just from uh, people in the environment, but then also if we think about it on a higher level, um, societal discrimination, cultural discrimination. Uh, for example, right now, we are in the midst of having the highest number of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation being introduced in the history of this country. There's currently more than 300 bills that have been introduced across the country. So if you think about that stress and thinking about turning on the TV and think about what that does to a developing individual who is coming to terms with who they are, trying to find their own way, and they're hearing over and over again that just because of who they are, who they love or how they express their gender, that they're different. Um, that can lead to high rates of depression, loneliness. We do see higher rates of suicide attempts, unfortunately. So that combination of those multiple forces during a time that's already very stressful as college students um, is compounded when we're talking about someone who is a sexual or gender minority. And just one last thing to add, and then I'll turn it over to Craig, is that on top of that, there's a high degree of secrecy um, and inability or fear of being open about one's sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and this is not just an imagined fear, but it's a real fear. So again, if we think about the fact that there's over 300 bills that are trying to restrict LGBTQ plus folks, and most of these bills are focused on young people, um, there is a real threat. So there are many reasons why people would not want to be out about their sexuality or their gender identity or expression, which then leads to more isolation, more loneliness, and an inability to access social support mechanisms that other students may have access to. Craig, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I mean, Gary, that's... A really great overview. As I was like listening, things I'm thinking about is what it might look like, especially for students. And 
I think Gary does a really good job explaining this is the environment. It's pretty much how I think of it as this chronic marginalization. It's constantly there. It's always there. And then you can think of the behaviors that we're looking at students, but this I would say LGBTQ plus folks across the board, but in the student, in a student kind of context, you know, having to potentially be in, remain in, or unable to leave the proverbial closet um, for safety concerns, because it normalizes this discussion that, oh, being, having this identity or attraction or behavior um, that is different from the cis and heteronormative kind of standard is somehow bad, is something negative about it and deserving of some sort of punishment. So privacy, safety, being in the closet, um, I think it can think also about difficulties navigating social relationships in college, difficulties accessing care, like mental health care. Um, I, I think one of the pieces being understanding this context really colors how you approach intervention as well, but it's not the normal, it's not the model training for mental health care practitioners at all. I mean, I'm glad, I, I'm glad we were kind of had people who help us kind of think through that and, and had that specialized training, but it's not the norm. So while there's, I think, in my mind, subtle shifts in the way one might intervene or might provide support for students or for just LGBTQ plus folks, they're fundamentally different than the, I guess, normative way of sometimes providing intervention. And without that, I think you could potentially do harm or just not be as effective as one could be if you actually took into con consideration this really, really denigrating context that LGBTQ plus folks face in the US and I would say in any colonial society. I would like to add something to what Craig said, and I think it's really important um, for us, especially at a university to be thinking about, is the fact that most individuals who go into any of the um, healthcare professions, any of the helping professions, are not getting adequate training regarding LGBTQ plus issues. So clinical psychologists, clinical social workers, physicians, nurses, um, really when we look at a number of studies that have examined the amount of training that individuals in these various helping professions or health professions are getting specific to LGBTQ plus issues, it's very minimal to none. And so when we have a young person who is perhaps at a point where they're ready to seek assistance or help for their mental health concerns, there may be nowhere for them to go um, because yep. you just don't have trained professionals. I think it, when I say it could be very subtle, I can even think of a slight example. Like, you know, the colloquial way of talking about mental health concerns is oftentimes, and I'm not gonna argue whether or not this piece is right, but you know, the idea of, well, your brain is wired differently, there's a chemical imbalance, but that messaging pretty much kind of puts the onus on the person. Something about you is off key. Well, all right, LGBTQ plus folks are being told they're off key their entire lives, throughout the entirety. So sometimes as you know, healthcare providers, we might, and I'm not saying that's how we'll frame it, but we might use that kind of route to help people take the blame off themselves. Like it isn't your fault sometimes you're experiencing this. Maybe you're just more reactive to certain stimuli in the environment. That's cool. And that's often quite effective in some ways to help people then transition to doing things that are more in line with what they care about. However, using that kind of framing I would say one needs to be particularly careful with LGBTQ plus folks because it kind of is re-stigmatizing the entire societal message that something's wrong with you, it's your fault, even though that's not our intention. But without understanding that context, you can inadvertently re-stigmatize clients. And we know there's a lot in literature of, we know that, well, LGBT, especially LGBT persons are much more likely to access treatment services. 
transgender and gender diverse folks might be more apt to access them, but they face a lot more stigma from healthcare professionals compared to cisgender folks. Uh, you know, so that's just an example that comes to my mind when I think of just really subtle framing that to me has, can have a fundamental impact on the people you're working with. If I could add some data to that too, just to um, bring home and show you how challenging it is for LGBTQ plus folks. The, the Trevor Project does a national survey of LGBTQ plus individuals between the ages of 13 and 24. And in their last survey, the 2021 national survey, they did find that 48% of LGBTQ plus youth reported that they wanted counseling from a mental health professional, but were unable to receive it in the past year. So that's nearly half of people who are at the point where they actually want counseling, but they were not able to receive that counseling in the past year. Um, here in Washtenaw County, we had uh, a project funded for the past three years called the Community Health Access Initiative. And the initially our project was to educate primary care providers about LGBT mental health and substance use issues so that they would be able to identify them and then refer them to mental health professionals. What we found in the first year of our project was that there were not enough mental health professionals for the primary care physicians to refer people to. So we actually changed the focus of our project and started training mental health professionals in how to work with LGBTQI um, adolescents and young adults. Um, and that really became the primary focus for the three years of our project because we saw such a lack of individuals who were trained and prepared and could actually provide appropriate services. That is absolutely interesting. And it, it's got me thinking about access, right? You're talking about access on the side of uh, the actual professionals who are helping, not necessarily being prepared. And I'm thinking about it from the other side, too. I, I'm a black man and I know in my community there is a stigma around seeking help um, with any type of mental health or anything like that. Um, so I, I'd love to hear your opinion on do you feel like there is a similar stigma in the LGBTQ plus community um, and is that impacting access to quality care as well? The thing that comes to my mind is I don't know if it's a simple yes or no answer for this. Uh, you know, as I find myself saying most of the time to every question I get asked is it depends. Um, so the example you give James is I think a, a good illustration of that. There are all these intersecting identities that we possess. For example, you know, I'm from the Caribbean and there are a lot of stigma. There's a lot of stigma about accessing mental health services and who should be the person one accesses. So, you know, the immediate person that, you know, people often would go to is your religious leader. Well, you know, in the Caribbean, religious leaders, sexual orientation, you know, there's a lot of issues going on there. So I think it really depends. Um, but those, that in of itself could be barriers apart from just, well, are there stigma from your community? In I think in some of the places I've been, which would have been more, I guess, in the East Coast, more bigger kind of city places, it's more acceptable then to, to see a therapist. So I think there's a little bit less stigma there, but then it's still kind of, I think, might differ based on, you know, based on gender, based on gender identity, all these other pieces, um, and then just having the know-how to access them. I mean, to add to what Gary was saying earlier, from a personal standpoint, 
in the past when I've been looking for therapists, when I remember it was, and I'm in the field, I know how to do this, but it's a challenge to sift through and find therapists and know how to ask the questions to say, okay, do you have competence dealing with LGBTQ plus folks? Because I don't feel like educating you. I do that all my life. I don't have to do that with my therapist as well. And I mean, I, yeah, I can find it, but the amount of effort it takes on my part as somebody who knows how to do this, I can only imagine for others who are coming in in a very vulnerable state and also don't know that they can say, you know, this isn't working for me. Let me find another one, which is challenging in of itself. We kind of go in assuming this is how it's always going to be. The one therapist is kind of like all, oh, because that's the narratives we often get. So yeah, I wish I had a clear cut answer other than it really depends on all the other forces that people could experience that might impact whether or not they feel comfortable sharing or even just seeing therapists, because there's also the piece of, this actually comes to mind, potentially being outed by virtue of going to see a therapist. And, you know, we've had to, I've had clients before where we've had to work kind of strategically about how do we, how do you find a story that's palatable to tell the other people in your life to protect you being in the closet, to protect you in your safety, to protect you from violence and all these other pieces. So, yeah, I don't know, Gary, there's anything else you're thinking there? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that is a, it is a complex answer. Um, and that's what makes the field of mental health so interesting is that everything is complex. There are no easy answers. Um, yep. You know, I think the intersectional issue is, is definitely extremely important here. Um, we have a study going on right now with Emory University in Atlanta looking at black gay young men living with HIV and mental health services. Um, and we do find, as, as you mentioned, James, some of the young men are speaking more from the shame and stigma attached to the black community. Um, whereas others talk about a greater openness in the gay community, but then you have that intersection of those two cultures coming together, right? So it's not always an easy thing, like I'm just gonna take my blackness and put it in the corner and you know now I'm gonna go because other um, you know, young gay men are. So it, it, it is really complex. I think that in, um, one thing that I definitely see in, in younger LGBTQ plus folks is that there seems to be more of an openness around mental health issues. Uh, there's yeah. a lot more discussion, um, you know, with the young people, the project I talked about before, the Community Health Access Initiative Project, we had a action committee, which is a group of young people who are members of the LGBTQ plus community. And they talked very openly about mental health issues. And that, that gave me a lot of, um, uh, I guess, excitement and, and hope. Um, now, one, one place where I would say though, there is a challenge is that when it comes to transgender individuals, because the relationship between the mental health community and the transgender community has not always been a very positive one. Uh, some of that is, because of, uh, in order to get gender affirming treatments, um, particularly gender affirming surgery, uh, people often have to have a letter from a mental health provider saying that they are mentally stable and prepared and ready for the surgery, or even in some states and some places for hormones. So there's this tension where you, you almost have to go to a mental health provider to get that letter, but you have to be careful not to reveal too much because yeah. someone may, uh, a therapist may look at you and be like, well, no, you are, you're too depressed. There's no way 
um, I'm going to approve this. Well, the reason you're so depressed <laughs> is because you need the hormones. Um, you need the surgery. So it really does create a lot of tension. Um, what we did in a lot of the trainings that I spoke about before is that we actually work with mental health providers on how to write those letters and how to have sessions with their trans um, and non-binary clients in a way that helps to disarm them from this immediate kind of roadblock that often goes up when they see a therapist. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sad, but, you know, gender dysphoria is still a psychiatric disorder and that is often needed in order to have a clinical diagnosis for insurance companies to cover gender affirming treatments. So again, that society saying you're abnormal, something's wrong. Um, so we give you a code in order for you to have what I would consider medically necessary um, treatment. So it's, it's a real tension and a, and a lot of people, you know, still struggle with that. And I appreciate you saying that all of these answers, I think, are going to be complex answers. Just it's it's not an easy topic. Um, but Gary, you mentioned young people and. Uh, some studies have said that young people right now are preferring to access psychological support on the Internet. Um, and I've even seen that with the students that I work with across the board, especially since the pandemic has started. Um, do you feel like accessing that information and support on the Internet creates a safe community? And does it really provide that kind of reliable information or that reliable access that they need? Yeah, that's really great question, James. And I, I think that the pandemic has really changed the way that both we deliver and people receive mental health services substantially. And I think, again, especially for young people. Now, when we're talking about, and I like to refer to it as telemental health, when we're, we're talking about telemental health, you know, there's so many different ways in which that can be done. So there can be you know, asynchronous messaging or information that's being shared. There can be synchronous um, video chats like Zoom. There can be just tele-mental health that's just through the telephone. So there's so many different ways to do it. And so I think we have to be really careful about which type of services people are using. Um, I, I had a student at the very beginning of the pandemic that was using um, a mental health service that was not being provided by licensed professionals. Um, and they would send messages and then get messages back. Um, and they were more life coach or support individuals, but not really true mental health professionals. Um, that I think can be problematic um, depending on the training, the issue, things like that. I think in the, the positive category, um, I would say that during the pandemic, a lot more people moved to doing telemental health through um, video because that was really the only way that people could receive services. I think in terms of more prolonged access to mental health services, um, that there, there has been a shift. And I, and I think it's a good shift because it was really needed because a lot of LGBTQ plus young people um, were more affected by the pandemic than others. Um, and it's really good to, to know that this is continuing. So people are now getting access to mental health care who never had access to it before. 
the other piece that comes to mind, and I think kind of tying what you were saying before, James, that I think there is a generational difference in that it's more normalized to just talk about mental health. So that's a good thing. The other piece is like the TikTok therapy type of stuff we often see, which, you know, on the one hand, I'm really glad it's much more discussed. On the other hand, sometimes I see these things like, oh, that's really wrong. Oh, that's that's cringy. That's not that's not the way we put it. Oh, that's it's really reducing something really, really complex. And there are potential implications that could be more harmful because then sometimes the messaging is it's almost like, this is so simple. How could you not figure it out? Like, here's the cure to depression. Like, it's not that simple. And by framing it like that, sometimes it could, again, kind of restigmatize people because then there's the question, well, why not me? I've done all these simple things and why do I still feel depressed? Or why do I still feel all these other pieces? So thank you for that. And so I think we are seeing across the board, like you just said, Craig, that it's just less stigma in general around uh, mental health um, with the younger generations. And I think we're, because of that, we're seeing the rise in mental health challenges across the board because people are actually going to see or actually reporting these things. How do you feel your research contributes to a safer, more supportive LGBTQ plus community or campus community um, knowing that? That's a a good question. How I would like to think of my research, maybe it's how I'd frame this. Um, So a lot of what I'm studying right now, which is at this point, one of the the major things I'm thinking about is how clinicians and mental health professionals kind of make decisions, especially diagnostic decisions. And one of the the, the main issues I think a lot about is kind of more stigmatized and diagnoses that we tend to assign, which might be things like personality disorders. The issue that comes to my mind is if you divorce context, a lot of the criteria used to think about these different disorders kind of makes sense. But when you think about the context, the chronic stigma that Gary initially talked about, that LGBTQ plus folks face, and the research just suggests a lot of these behavioral adaptations to stigma, which are functional in some ways. So for like being in the closet is really helpful in many ways. It helps people avoid stigma, discrimination, violence, and death in many cases. So it is completely functional. That being said, it's a lot of work to stay in the closet. It's a lot of work to constantly be vigilant, to have to constantly look at what am I doing? How are people perceiving me? And all these other pieces. The take home is that it's kind of this learning mechanism of I need to hide the true me, my true emotions, my true feelings for worry about how other people are going to judge that. Cool. But if you extend that to other domains, it might cause some dysfunction and some problems. So something that's really functional in one way because of the context might not be helpful in another way. For example, in interpersonal relationships, when you want to, when you need to be able to tell your partner, hey, here's what I need that I'm not getting versus kind of shutting up and hiding that below. And then it kind of comes out as a blow up or something like that, just in a less effective form. So the way I think about it is, okay, that's just an understandable learning mechanism in relation to chronic stigma. But there are some other parallels that think of that as that's a criterion for personality disorder. And there's a fundamental mismatch to me in the idea that it's not a flaw in your personality, but if I take into consideration the context, this is understandable. Is it helpful? No, I'm not saying that. But by saying you have a flawed personality, you have a disordered personality, in my mind, we're propagating potentially even more stigma to an already stigmatized population. So that's kind of where my mind has been right now. And sitting with trying to figure out how do we, one, acknowledge the distress, acknowledge that some behaviors are functional and some, in some ways they're also not functional, and still, for lack of a better phrasing, situate the blame where it needs to be. It's not that the person is deficient in many cases, it's 
perhaps much more that the environment is just chronically stigmatizing and, and, and this is one way to adapt to it. So I'd like to think in the long run, this will hopefully help with more in the, at least focus on the, 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 the mental health professionals themselves, training about how to provide affirming care, how to think through context, not for just LGBTQ plus folks, but you can think of context in many levels. You can think of how poverty impacts people's mental health and how they, how they interact with the world but our models of psychopathology, our models of mental health are really decontextualized. It's all assuming everything is, for the most part, I know this is kind of, you're painting it down to like a really, really simple, simplified manner, but for the most part, a lot of them are, it's within the person, it's intra-individual. There's something about the person that's gone awry from the norm and that's abnormal. And I guess the way I think of it is, uh, for some groups, I'm not saying it's helpful, but it's expectable, given the context of, chronic discrimination and stigma that these that you know you see over and over again like uh, as Gary said these I think the as terrible as this is those multiple new legislations that are being proposed is a really great illustration of that um, it's a really great illustration of how individual how legislation could lead to people feeling safe issues of safety issues of being able to talk about this like, you can't say gay okay so again back in the closet self-silencing not saying how you feel, not saying how you experience, knowing that something about you is wrong or inherently bad in some way. And then there are probably there are definitely ramifications for how you interact with the world after that. So in my mind, is that because the person's personality is something wrong there? Or is it, yeah, if, this, if the environment is like that, how could you not learn to be like this? And again, that's a subtle shift in the framing, but to me, fundamental. It's not so much your wiring is off. It's like, if anybody was in this situation where the world is against you in such fundamental ways, how could you not learn to cope in certain ways that are maybe not helpful in certain contexts? And maybe we can think about that in, in, in therapy and think through what's going to work in different places. But how could you not? So it, I think it kind of circumvents that idea of where the cause is. Is it you? Is it the environment? It's like, I think more environment, but for the person, we might try to figure it out what's going to work for them. Gary, how about your research? Well, I like to really think about not just my research, but my research and my practice um, and also my teaching, because I think that um, it's really important for those of us who are members of the LGBTQ plus community and academics to really not just isolate our work to our research. Um, we have to live the change. So... I think being having faculty members who are open and out about their sexuality, about their gender identity, gender expression, um, is an, an act of activism. And we need more of that. We need a lot more visibility. So, you know, I'm very open about being a gay man. My husband, who's also a professor at the university, you know, we've been together 28 years. Um, and people need to see that. They need to see that visibility of gay, lesbian, bi, trans, non-binary folks that are professors, and we also happen to be gay at the same time. So I, I think that's one thing. Um, I, I, you know, with, with my work, um, you know, I've been working with LGBTQ plus youth for nearly 30 years in, in different capacities. And, you know, some of our work, as I mentioned before, has been, um, to train mental health professionals and also other healthcare professionals and how to work in ways that are culturally humble and sensitive to the needs of LGBTQ plus youth. 
Um, we also have done a lot of work around stigma um, and looking at the effects of stigma, particularly for um, trans and non-binary young folks. And I think the, the core of a lot of the work that I and my team do is also looking at resilience and resistance. You know, oftentimes with populations like this, we only um, look at the deficits. So we look at higher rates of depression, higher rates of, um, you know, other negative health outcomes. A lot of our work has really been focused about what is, what are the strengths associated with being um, a gay Puerto Rican man or a black trans um, young woman in Detroit? What are some of the, the, the aspects, elements of the community and the individual and the groups that you're connected with and you belong to that help to give you strength and that help with survival? Um, so I think that's, that's one thing that we really try and do in all of our work is to always bring in the resilience and to see how we can then use that to develop community-based and really community-led interventions and programs that promote resilience and also promote resistance to these negative forces. Um, the last thing I would say is that I, I've done a, a fair amount of policy-related work and, and continue to do that. And I think it's really important for us as, as academics and researchers to use our data for policy level change. So I've done uh, a fair amount of work with the Williams Institute at UCLA, which is the largest LGBTQ plus public policy institute and was fortunate enough to be a visiting professor there during a sabbatical a couple of years ago. And so we've been able to use data from our research in a number of different policy briefs and amicus briefs to the Supreme Court. Some of our research was in the decision related to um, uh, ending employment discrimination, the Supreme Court ruling on that, also in um, marriage equality. And I think it's really important for us to be active in the policy arena. And I know that there's challenges and sometimes people say, well, you know, as a nonprofit, academic institution, we can't lobby as a recipient of funds from the federal government, we can't lobby. That's right, we can't lobby, but we can educate, we can inform, we can let people know the impact of this negative legislation. Um, my team is currently working on a review of the negative mental health effects of anti-LGBTQ plus legislation on young people in the US. Um, and it is, devastating. Um, again, 300 pieces of legislation are currently active. And 2021, we saw more than 30 actual bills that became law across the United States. And so as researchers, as academics, as activists, we need to be combating these things with fact, with science, with the ability to really look at what impact these negative policy um, initiatives are having on our young people. Because again, most of these bills are focused on either the participation of transgender youth in sports, discussions that occur in schools around sexual orientation and gender identity. Some are related to criminalizing the use of hormone blockers or hormones for trans and non-binary youth. 
So all of these things are about young people. And I would say that a lot of people aren't even aware that this is going on. Um, and so I really do feel like through our research, through our practice, through our teaching, we need to raise the level of awareness and we need to get people to think about what they could do to try and combat these forms of potential legislation and to really support LGBTQ plus young people. So for any individual students who are identifying as LGBTQ plus and they're struggling with mental health, where would each of you suggest that they start in their search for care? NAMI, the National Association of Mental Illness, does have some materials, but it's not really extensive. Um, we've created some resources that are specific to um, Michigan through the Community Health Access Initiative. Um, so some people can get access, or you can get access to that on, on our website. Um, but even with that, our funding was over and we tried multiple times to get refunded and no one really cared, <laughs> I mean, to be honest, about LGBTQ plus mental health. Um, we submitted multiple applications. Um, and because it was service provision and it was focused on this population of young people, um, people really just were not interested. Um, you know, I would say in terms of, you know, James, to your question about where do people go, I, I think that, you know, here at University of Michigan, we have CAPS, um, which provides mental health services. Um, and I think that they are really overloaded, overwhelmed. I mean, there's just, there's a lot more need, I think, than there are services. And one thing I'd like to add is that um, we do have a, a website, um, an LGBTQIA plus health resources website. And this was a collaboration between um, some of our team in the School of Public Health and folks in the School of Information to create a, a searchable database um, of resources for LGBTQIA plus youth living in Michigan, their parents, educators, and also healthcare providers. I would say, James, it's, it's not easy. And I think that that is really challenging, you know? And, and I think, like you said earlier, Craig, even for you know, those of us who are in the field, um, it's sometimes it's hard to find a good therapist. And I think that e one thing that I've seen too is that um, more and more therapists are now saying that they're LGBTQ plus friendly, Yes. Um, and when you do searches on things like psychology today and other resources, um, that has really become a way to market, um, yeah. for some therapists and the, unfortunately, a lot of those folks are not, um, that LGBTQ plus friendly. They know that it is a, um, it, it, it's a market. It's a population of people who need and want mental health services. Um, but a lot, um, a number of those individuals are not really trained. And Agreed. And even I, I, this is I, I, the website I used when I was in, I guess, the East Coast was Zen Care. And, you know, I've realized they've actually expanded before it was just Rhode Island. It's Rhode Island, New York, Texas, and California I'm seeing now. So it looks like that's expanding. Now, that's just a repository of individual therapist organizations. And you can then search through based on, you know, insurance type. You can also search through, like, based on competence with at least they're saying that they're competent with LGBTQ plus issues. So that's like the bare minimum. But as Gary was saying, and even when I was going through this, it was, you know, sifting through and a piece of B 
being in this field, doing this type of intervention meant I knew how to read between the lines of how people described their affiliation and how they described their competence with LGBTQ plus folks. And it took a while. It took a long time to find somebody. I thought this, and especially knowing that, you know, I specialize in this means I'm going to, to be quite honest, be more judgmental about what they're doing. So if I think they're not doing it right, I'll probably be like, no, this isn't working. I'm out. I'll just become more frustrated. But, you know, that's how I thought. There are other, you know, you can look through, as you said, Psychology Today. I think ABCT's website might be a good place to look as well, which is the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. But there is that piece of, while individuals might say that they're LGBTQ plus affirming and all, you know, really earnestly want to be, might not necessarily have the knowledge or the hum humility to understand where they might lack things. So even as Gary and myself are talking about, you know, being activists and things like that, well, we also are both cis guys, you know, there's a lot of privilege that we're afforded to be able to make this kind of noise and say things and be kind of, I guess, uh, uh, push boundaries a little bit more so all those pieces go into thinking about, well, who am I working with? How do I understand where I fit in all of this? And what might I not know? What might I just, you know, have left less of an experience and be humble enough to know that, but know how to not burden my patients because of my lack of an experience and know how to find the resources I need to inc increase my competence, yet staying humble. I think those are kind of pieces that will be more directed towards therapists or intervention and students as well who are in this field. Various times throughout this conversation, you've brought up all the the bills, the laws, the legislation that is in process. And I'm wondering for myself and for our listeners, for those who, who want to help, I know part of what you said was education is an important part of it. So how can we become more educated? And, and are there any other things we can do to, to help this situation? Yeah, I do think that there are a number of ways to, you know, to get educated because oftentimes silence is, is really what um, helps to perpetuate these things. Um, there are websites such as our, our organizations such as the Human Rights Campaign or HRC that provides pretty up-to-date information about a lot of this legislation. There's also the UCLA Williams Institute that I spoke about before, which is a public policy institute. They have a number of briefs on these various issues, policy briefs, um, just information briefs, and they do a really good job of using science to address these issues. Um, you know, one simple thing too is you could just Google, <laughs> um, you know, anti-LGBT legislation and come up with a lot. Um, there are legislation trackers um, in, that you can access as well. Um, here in the state of Michigan, you can actually go straight to the Michigan legislation website and their search terms that you could type in lesbian, gay, things like that. Um, some pieces that are currently occurring here in, in Michigan, um, there is a bill that's been introduced that would restrict um, transgender youth from participating in sports. Um, that are not aligned with their sex assigned at birth. Um, and so basically it says only, um, and the language is this, boys who were boys at birth can participate in boy sports and only girls who were girls at birth can participate in, in girl sports. So that's one piece of legislation here in Michigan. Also, there is legislation related to 
conversion therapy, which we we haven't really talked about, um, which still exists and um, is active here in the state of Michigan. Um, there's been multiple attempts to ban conversion therapy at the state level, and that legislation has never made it out of committee. And that's been introduced in multiple sessions. We do in Ann Arbor, we're one of about six cities in the state of Michigan that has um, legislation related to banning conversion therapy. So here in Ann Arbor, um, there's actually uh, implications for your licensure, plus there's also a fine attached to it. So we do have that, um, you know, as a municipality, we do. Um, so, and to your point, James, about what you can do, I really think educating people about what's going on is just really critical and really important. Um, I teach a class on uh, LGBTQ plus health promotion. And in my last class, I showed a number of the slides from both the HRC and also uh, an organization called the Movement Advancement Project, which really does a great job of breaking down legislation by state and by issue. And people were, and they're taking a class on LGBTQ plus issues, were blown away by the large number of bills that have been introduced and the number of um, laws that have gone into, um, into practice. So I think education, education, and also, you know, our elected officials work for us. We are their constituents. We're the ones that put them in office. We're the ones that keep them in office. We need to talk to our elected officials. We need to let them know what we think about these issues. We need to be very vocal and very verbal with them. We need to call them, visit, write letters. But if we don't speak up and let them know how we feel about these topics, I can tell you that the right wing is definitely going to be doing that. And conservatives are definitely going to be telling them, yes, we need legislation like Florida here in Michigan. Um, and there are many forces at play right now that are attempting to do just that. So we need to be active. We need to be vocal. We need to be visible. Well, Gary, Craig, this has been thought provoking and informative and an honor. So thank you for uh, joining us today and, and thank you for your time. Yeah, well, thank you for doing this, for talking about yeah. this topic. The Give Like a Victor Fund helps current and future alumni leverage the power of the Michigan network. Every gift strengthens our existing programming and helps develop new, relevant ways to meet the highest needs of our alumni, whether it's through professional support or social engagement. Make a gift today by visiting alumni.umich.edu forward slash GLAV giving. In addition to Gary and Craig, we also spoke with recent U of M grad Iniabasi Ubong, who discusses the unique mental health challenges faced by LGBTQ students and recent grads, including accessing affirmative care on and off campus. So in your opinion, what do you think the unique mental health challenges are for LGBTQ students and recent grads, and how does that impact their college experience? The first thing that comes to mind is the new attacks on trans and gay youth that do kind of span up past the youth and up to age 25 into the age of recent grads. So I would say that environment 
is definitely challenging because like even if people at not everyone at the university of course holds those views those transphobic and homophobic views do kind of like seep into the culture do you think there are any stigmas around mental health within the lgbtq plus community um i think about black community i think about my family and i think about all the things that are said about not needing that so do you think those type of stigmas exist I do. And of course, like I'm Black and Nigerian, so I can speak to those experiences directly. They'll kind of overlap. And so you'll either get maybe from one side, oh, mental health is not needed. And from the other side, I don't know if I would call it stigma, but the knowledge that a lot of providers aren't like well-versed in LGBTQ health and thus won't be able to help us. So it's, I wouldn't call it stigma, but I would say it's a lot of work to find actual like competent care. Do you think the pandemic has had any impact on the LGBTQ plus uh, students who are seeking mental health information or support? I definitely think so. Um, first, I'll say like the isolating nature of the pandemic is not good for anyone's mental health. And then on top of that, there are more people seeking services in general. So there's longer waiting lists, longer times, um, to see a provider. And then the number of providers that are like outwardly like LGBT affirming is lower too. So that makes it a little more difficult. So you are a U of M grad. Can you speak to your experience as a member of the LGBTQ plus community um, at U of M? And how did you feel? Did you feel supported? Did you feel safe um, as much as you would like to share? Did I feel supported and safe? No, like institutionally, no. I think a lot of times students will learn from each other and maybe I'll come in as a first year and talk to the second years like, oh, this individual professor will support you if you go to them. But overall from like my department and school-wide, yeah, the answer was no. There was a um, difficulty, a lot of difficulty in um, I think just understanding trans experiences and recognizing and affirming the difference, the, the different experiences that trans students have, specifically in my department. So um, yeah, I would not say that I was like affirmed or supported. It was difficult. I'm sorry that was your experience, but I, I can imagine that that is a, a common experience. Um, and if I can sum up what I heard you saying is institutionally, there wasn't a lot of support. Um, the support mainly came from peers or from people in the know within the community? Mm -hmm. um, well, peers, and then also the peers would be able to point you to like specific people who would be supportive. But yeah, to my knowledge, there was never, okay, this department, never anything like broad statements that, you know, other LGBT people would endorse that like this department or this, you know, school or anything like that was overwhelmingly supportive. Can you speak to any of uh, any resources on campus that you feel were valuable for um, anyone seeking that that mental health support? I would always recommend like affinity groups, just talking to other people who are you know similar in any type of identity. And I know the Spectrum Center has a lot of those. Um, and I have recommended uh, the Queer Advocacy Coalition. Um, because I know their leadership has 
been in the area for a while and could definitely like point out mental health resources. So what do you think U of M could do to make students who identify LGBTQ plus feel more supported in this, in the university experience? I would say like encouraging individual professors and departments to be understanding of different people's backgrounds and struggles and maybe being a little bit more, I don't know, lenient with students, not holding everyone to the same. I mean, of course you have to hold everyone to the same standard in terms of grades, but just a little bit more grace for students as this is, I'm not sure even year two or three of the pandemic and it's still a struggle. Yeah, so I would say, yeah, encouraging more grace and leniency. Um, the university overall, hmm. I would say just pour more resources into people who, people and organizations that are already supporting queer students, you know, more resources, more capacity. Yeah. What can people listening, people like me, what can we do to be allies and more supportive? And yeah, and I'll stop it there for, for anyone seeking those, those, that mental health support in general, or what can we do? I would definitely say encourage like provider trainings. Um, I've seen a lot of that kind of work happen in my own department, and that increases the number of providers that are affirming and less likely to question someone's identity instead of accepting it. Um, in terms of, let's see, what individuals can do to support the mental health of LGBTQ folks, hmm. you know, like speak up when you do see um, like homophobia or transphobia happening. Um, and that way the LGBTQ people around you know they're not alone even in some small way. Thank you to our guests, U of M professor, Dr. Gary Harper, U of M assistant professor, Dr. Craig Rodriguez Sejas and Inyabasi Ubong, and to you, our listeners. University of Michigan alumni are making a difference all over the world and we wanna continue telling their stories. Are you a member of the Alumni Association? If you haven't already, we invite you to join us today. Visit our website to stay connected at alumni.umich.edu. Also, don't forget to give this podcast a rating or review and hit the follow button so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, go blue.